0: A new poll looks at the popularity of AR-15s as a federal judge upholds Delaware's ban on them. Plus, Pepperdine University's Jake Charles on the massive effect the Bruin decision has had on lower courts' view of the Second Amendment. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast.
1: You know the devil's got no-
0: All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our free membership options today if you want to, or a free, our free newsletter option. So I got a phone call in the middle of our my introduction. I usually speed right through that one. It's almost hard to comprehend. i uh, been able to get that down so good. But <laughs> anyway, I. Um, Yes, you can head over to reload.com and sign up for our free newsletter if you want to keep up to date with the latest gun news in America. Or you can buy a membership if you want to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you will not get anywhere else. This week, we are talking about the effects of the Bruin ruling from the Supreme Court on how lower courts have handled Second Amendment cases. And for that purpose... We have a special guest, uh, associate professor from Pepperdine University, Jake Charles. Welcome to the show, Jake. Thank you for joining. It's your second time on on the podcast, I believe. Yeah, that's right. First time at Pepperdine, though. So thanks for having me, Stephen. <laughs> yes, yes. You, uh, Jake used to run Duke's Firearm uh, Law Center. For uh, anyone who isn't aware of that, but uh, now he's a full time professor uh, and is doing his own research as well. Published or. I guess you published a revised paper that included some new estimates of the effects of Bruin. Can you just tell us a little bit about the top line results of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so the paper is kind of a broader discussion about Bruin. And mm-hmm. in, my, in the revisions that I just did, I included this analysis that I'd done of um, the eight months following the Bruin decision in federal court. And it's kind of the top line numbers were Um, that we were seeing a lot more cases struck down in the immediate aftermath of Bruin than we did in the aftermath of Heller. So I have uh, the numbers right here. So there were out of 174 total federal court decisions that were issued in that eight months, there were 12 civil cases in which a court found at least one of the claims, uh, uh, at least one of the claims uh, prevailed in the case of the statute or government action violated the Second Amendment, nine Mm -hmm. in criminal cases and for an overall 21 out of those 174 decisions for a success rate of about 12% in the first eight months um, in total decisions. um, Right. Which might not sound like
0: a lot. By claims. Right. That might not sound a lot like a lot to the average person listening, but how does that compare to after Heller? Right. So
1: it might not sound a lot in the abstract, but if you remove cases that were challenging, say the federal law that bars those with felony convictions from possessing firearms, it shoots up dramatically. So for the civil mm-hmm. cases alone, the success rate is 31%. And um, I don't recall off the top of my head what the civil success rate was after Heller. Um, but in the eight years after Heller, all, all claims had something like a 9% success rate, including those mm-hmm. um, including those ones with the felony um, prohibitions. And so um, a 31% success rate, one in three of these lawsuits are having at least one claim prevail in the civil lawsuits where someone's uh, challenging it, not as a result of a criminal conviction. Uh, is 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 a pretty high success rate overall, and particularly um, in the eight months that we've seen since the Bruin decision.
0: Yeah, it's a dramatic difference, and I, and I think in your uh, analysis you found there were zero cases in the immediate aftermath of Power that first yeah, year. That's right. Yeah, relying nobody, nobody on won. yeah, relying on this a uh, study from the eight years uh, in, in the
1: first year, uh, the first six months after Heller, no no challenges were successful out of seventy different claims.
0: Right. Yeah, and and it really and in that same paper, this from from two other professors, right, Eric Rubin, yes, and uh, and uh, yes, and and so they did an analysis of Heller several years later to yeah. see the effects of that law, and so that matches up against your analysis, which uh, shows a pretty dramatic difference. I mean, I think it took uh, four years for mm-hmm. there to be thirty plus claims that were successful second amendment claims after heller and well i mean that and then uh, that also includes the two years after mcdonald yes exactly
1: yeah four years yeah roughly four years to see the same type of uh lower courts striking down laws we've seen in eight months since Bruin.
0: yeah and we'll, we'll get into some of the you know why this is and 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 talk about some of uh, you know your thoughts on on bruin and yeah. and some of and, and these effects but let's just get into some of the more more of the details of the specifics about these challenges that we've seen and which ones have been successful and which ones haven't been as successful yet so you cuz you did a detailed breakdown of this in your in your paper which people by the way can can read uh, and I, I recommend you know people read uh your paper and all you know, it's a good resource for this and it's good to have those Different points of view. I know sometimes on this podcast, it can be uh, people from a lot of the pro-gun point of view uh, more explicitly. And uh, so that's why we like to have people on uh, who are more, you know, in your case, you're more critical of the Bruin ruling, um, uh, not to say that you're anti-gun or anything, but you, you come from a different perspective than, for instance, uh, Costas Morris, who we've had on a number of times, um, who is a pro-gun uh, litigator. So um, it's, it's good to have that sort of uh, perspective balance out there so you can understand where everyone's coming from. But your paper details these specific challenges Mm -hmm. um, and how they perform. Can you give us a breakdown of that?
1: Yeah. So um, if you look at the challenges, and I should say, one kind of big caveat at the beginning is I only looked at federal court decisions. Uh, So there are some state court decisions. There's some state court challenges to state um, uh, convictions. There are some state um, civil challenges. I only looked at federal court decisions. And I only looked at the ones that were uploaded to the Westlaw database, which is one of the main databases for uploading uh, for where to courts to upload their decisions. So there there might be decisions that were issued in the eight months that weren't there. But that's kind of one big uh, kind of caveat when I talk about these. Um, and I'll say one other thing, which is that I just did a blog post on the Duke Firearms Law um, blog, where I linked to the spreadsheet that I used. So if folks want to look at that spreadsheet, uh, they might you know, say, oh, you should classify this case differently. That's fine. Um, so I kind of disclose the way. But yours that I is classify. still
0: it's still the most comprehensive. I'll say that. Like I don't think I've seen any other analysis attempt to put numbers to these things yet. So, yeah, so yeah. it's very valuable. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So um so yeah. So the hopefully the spreadsheet's there. If people want to classify differently, they can. Um but when I look at the cases and I group them by types of claims that were raised, you can see there's a there's certain types of claims that are finding more success than others. So um, New York and New Jersey changed the private property default rule, which uh, is a uh, the background norm had been prior to these laws that you are allowed to carry on private property unless the owner objects. And both laws switched the default and said you're not allowed to pro- carry on private property unless the owner gives their consent. Um, and there's been I'm counting five different challenges to those types of laws um, in which courts have said that's an unconstitutional thing to do. So those are five for five um, success yeah. rate. Um, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and then uh, similarly with some of the changes in state licensing laws post-Bruin, so the states that changed their laws to comply with uh, eliminating the May issue requirement, but then adding uh, or specifying their good moral character or their training requirements differently. Uh, there have been, um, at least within some categories of those claims, uh, courts have said that those um, those licensing revisions have, have been unconstitutional. So I classify those as three out of three, because um, in the classification of licensing laws, there's been success on those. Um, and then kind of one that's more a little bit more broad ranging is to sensitive place laws. So some of these are to new designations of states that have added places to uh, the set of places where a person cannot carry Guns, Uh, some of them are to old places and to appeals from criminal convictions from those, Um, but those have had a more than 50% success rate. So I count 13 claims in there, and I think that means seven of them have been um, successful. And that's not including kind of every specific designation. It's not breaking it down separately into zoos and playgrounds and mental health facilities. Um, But as a set of claims about sensitive places, about seven out of 13 of those have been successful. So those have been kind of the buckets of the most successful um, types of claims. But there are in almost all categories and excluding mostly just the criminal convictions. There have been some successes in most categories of gun laws that i charted.
0: Yeah, but there were some there were a few that were zero percent, right?
1: Yes. And I think most of those I think most of
0: those were
1: um criminal convictions um and so there were appeals from uh, from right. criminal convictions so I believe
0: that was um uh, if i'm remembering correctly it was things like the bail conditions and yep. uh prohibited persons um list you know like the uh, nonviolent felon challenges yes. yeah the felon the
1: felon um one has been entirely unsuccessful there's been some success on other prohibitions in federal law like domestic violence restraining orders um be yeah, bail conditions sentence enhancements um convictions for unlawfully using a weapon during a crime, um, right. all NFA violations have been um, dismissed as not violating the Second Amendment.
0: Right. Yeah. So there, there's a clear sort of delineation between how the lower courts are looking at certain claims and how they're looking at other ones. And I, and some of it's perhaps not surprising, right? The, those three big ones really deal directly with gun carry, which is what right. was at play in Bruin. Um, And so it's perhaps more, um, uh, you know, an an easier lift to say, well, this is what the court said on this issue, because that's what the court was specifically talking about in Bruin. Um, Whereas you get further away from gun carry uh, there, obviously, they put a standard in Bruin, which we'll which we'll discuss and we'll discuss some of the critiques that you have of it. But uh, but it's still further away from what they were explicitly talking about in the case. So uh, perhaps yes. that explains some of this. Although, you know, One of the interesting things to me, and I'd be interested in your point of view on this, is that nonviolent felon mm-hmm. prohibition challenges have been entirely unsuccessful so far. When this was kind of uh, something before Bruin that had been seeing some success, there was a, a, case, a federal case that uh, where I think the Second Amendment Foundation had um, won a case involving nonviolent felons uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, I think it was, and uh, and you had the, for instance, Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court Justice in Cantor. Uh It was a dissent, so the the plaintiff still lost, but it was her view that nonviolent felons should be. Uh, shouldn't be prohibited for life from owning guns, so it's interesting to see, in the wake of Bruin, which set this higher standard of review for gun laws mm-hmm. that this is this is sort of regressed a bit at least early on
1: yeah that's 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 exactly right that before Bruin, there was sort of a developing circuit split about when a person who had not been convicted of a violent felony. Uh, was raising an as-applied Second Amendment challenge. So saying not that this law is unconstitutional in all of its applications, but as applied to someone like me, or to me in particular, based on my circumstances and conviction, it's unconstitutional. And you're right, the Third Circuit had found this unconstitutional as applied to someone who did not commit what the court characterized as a serious crime. It said there was a serious crime uh, limit on the kind of underlying conviction that could deprive someone of their right to keep and bear arms. Other courts have said, no, it's actually a, um, you know, it's there's it a virtuous citizenry notion. And if they weren't uh, someone who's non-law abiding is not virtuous and therefore the legislature can strip it of their Second Amendment rights. And you're right that Justice Barrett, when she was a judge on the Court of Appeals and several other dissenting judges on Court of Appeals, also said uh, that this cannot be extended to nonviolent uh, for folks who have underlying nonviolent felonies. Um, But none of those claims have been successful so far in the trial courts. Uh, So it's possible that there might be different rulings once these cases go up on appeal. But I found it at least surprising that, as you said, Bruin makes the standard um, harder, at least it seems to be harder for the government to meet than does normal uh, means and scrutiny. And yet, even though some of these claims found success before, none of them are having success now. And this is this, this might be one area in which um, as some courts are, are saying, it it makes it easier for the government to sustain the constitutionality of a law because I think we can we can imagine that there are situations in which somebody you know has a nonviolent conviction and it would be really hard to justify on public safety grounds why taking their firearms away uh, would benefit the public. So there's this law review article called "Why Can't Martha Stewart Have Guns?" and right. um, You know, she's a perfect example of someone who is barred by federal law from possessing guns for the rest of her life unless she gets a presidential pardon. Um, And yet, if the government had to satisfy means in scrutiny, it'd be hard pressed to introduce evidence that someone who's convicted of whatever kind of fraud uh, offense that she was convicted of is uh, makes the community safer. right? Right. Whereas if if the government can say, look, there's a historical tradition of uh, taking guns away from people who were untrustworthy or who broke the law for any kind of infraction, whatever that may be. If that's what the historical tradition is, then that means the government has greater leeway under a historical tradition test than they might have if they had to satisfy means and scrutiny.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a, a valid point. Uh, and one of the critiques you've seen sort of from the right uh, about the text and tradition standard generally uh and, uh, you know, so I mean, obviously, I think most people in the gun rights movement are very happy with this mm-hmm. current standard. So it's not exactly a, a large percentage that have this that, that, that cite this concern as a reason not to to want the, uh, the Bruin standard. But but it is an interesting thought. And, uh, you know, certainly felons in the founding era, I think, often were executed. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, now, of course, what a felon was has changed quite a bit. Yeah. Since that time, and that sure. that may come into play as well yeah. as these these kinds of cases progress. One of the interesting things I don't know that this is a surprise, but it's certainly not uh, something that was a a goal of the gun rights movement. I think legal yeah you know, the legal movement in the wake of Bruin is uh, are some of these rulings dealing with um, you know felony indictments Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of, um, odd, the, the unique prohibition that surrounds them. You can, there's a ban on like obtaining guns, but not on possessing them. Um, and that, that got, uh, blocked by a federal judge. and then also a number um, of them i think at least four yeah
1: Yeah. so right 36 percent success rate for those types of claims
0: and these are these are some of the criminal claims that are kind of more of a wild card situation because you're not it's not like something that's planned ahead where the where the second amendment foundation or firearms policy coalition or nra or whoever has an idea of what laws they want to challenge this is more like criminals being convicted of crimes and then uh you know their defense attorneys oftentimes um these are uh, brought by public defenders. Actually, That's right. so yeah. far, uh, are are saying, "Well, look, there's a under this Bruin standard, there there may be a Second Amendment issue here." Yeah, and you've seen that with the the felony indictment prohibition, and then you've also seen it with, of course, the more newsworthy and controversial one, which was the domestic violence restraining order prohibition. Uh, both of those came out of criminal cases, yeah. and uh, and maybe we're I don't know that surprise is the right word, but not something that was uh, part of the gun right. rights movement's plan yes. for for how to, uh, uh, you know, go after, how to pursue the Second Amendment claims. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, and I'll throw in one more, and it's the ban on firearms with an obliterated serial number, right? Another right. one that's kind of had success post-Bruin that I think, you're right, I, I would say it was, it was surprising to me how much success these types of claims have had. Um, Post Bruin, because, you know, prior to Bruin, we would often say, um, you know, even if the court goes to a historical tradition test, it seems very unlikely that a court is going to say that someone who has been found by a court to have committed domestic violence and be a threat to their intimate partner uh, is going to be allowed to possess guns. That was kind of, you know, you know. I think a lot of us thought that seems unlikely to happen, even with a historical tradition test. Um, And yet, we've seen multiple courts say that's just the case. Um, And and in the and the other and and
0: actually, uh, just real quick, that might actually be the next Second Amendment case that the Supreme Court takes, right?
1: I think, yeah, I think there's a decent chance it will. The government just asked the Supreme Court to review the case from the Fifth Circuit, um, and so. Like, court's going to have to make a decision on that one. That's probably going to be the first, uh, the first major case that it's going to have to decide whether it takes or not.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I and, and and you know, I have a hard time seeing that all the other circuits will agree with the Fifth Circuit's interpretation, and so it's probably going to be likely that there'll be a circuit split by at least not by the time the court decides whether to hear it, then certainly by the time the court decides the actual case. Um, yeah, and, and so you're right that these are not kind of strategic lawsuits that are filed to. Um, to benefit gun owners generally, right? Their law, their their, defenses that are brought up in the course of a criminal uh, proceeding. Um, And, you know, it illustrates one of the ways in which Bruin's test is, um, is difficult for courts to apply to new situations, and particularly where they don't have the kind of briefing that they have in a civil case, right? So if there's a civil case filed, then there are, experts introduced, there's the resources from both parties. Uh, there's a discovery process, you not know, have that kind of thing going on on the criminal side. Um, you know, these are often happening in the, in the context of a motion to dismiss the indictment. Um, and then there's a short government brief in response, but there's no amicus briefs usually filed in these cases. And so the courts are um, either some have said explicitly, I'll conduct the historical inquiry myself, um, yeah. or they're simply saying, uh it's just the fact the government ha- hasn't met its burden here and so um has right. applied on these taxes, unconstitutional
0: yeah have you been surprised by the way at how often you see judges going out of their way to do their own historical analysis when when it's really explicitly not covered in bruin mean, bruin really puts the all of the the onus on that on the the government but you regardless of that you've seen a number of judges do their own analysis uh and sort of uh, in the absence of the government doing, I mean, I think Antioch yep. in New York is a really good example of that. That judge, that was a really fascinating case for a number of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- mm-hmm. That judge ruled that the plaintiffs didn't have standing at first, but then he also kind of explained to them how they could get standing. Right. <laughs> and, and so and they why did the that. laws
1: would have been unconstitutional. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then when it came time for the when, once they got past the standing requirement, He was sort of explaining, he did the analysis or he did the historical legwork for the the government who I guess just kind of, he seemed to, at least in his view, refused to do it themselves, uh, which he didn't need to do. He could have just said, under Bruin, you don't, if you don't give me anything, then you lose. Uh, And then he also sort of rewrote the law i've never seen that before he, right. he I i and i'm you i'm not a lawyer and i, I you know i'm not a, a researcher like you are but i've never seen a judge say part of this law can stand the, the way and but only if everybody added his own yes. like exception to it I, I believe it was the church um, yeah the church ban where he said this can't stand except uh but unless it has this exception. So I'm just going to put this exception yeah. in the ruling. Yeah.
1: And, and yeah. like in an earlier iteration, he had rewritten the moral character requirement, you know, explicitly right. kind of said like, and interpreted this way, cross out these words and add these words. I think that's a really rare thing to see in a ju- judicial opinion that a, a judge is kind of saying, here's the words that you have to construe the statute in this way. Like I, I'm rewriting the statute for you. I think that's incredibly yeah. rare. Um, so yeah, that's one case where we see a judge saying I'm going to undertake the task of historical inquiry. We've seen it in a couple of cases out of the Western District of Texas and Judge Counts in particular, who has struck down a couple of laws on Second Amendment grounds. But in other cases, he's upheld them and he said, look, I think I have to do the historical inquiry myself because otherwise it might be the case that the very same law is unconstitutional in one court and constitutional in another court. Not based on judges differing views of what the history means or how to interpret it or whether it's analogous, but just Mm -hmm. based on whether or not the government introduced, uh, you know, filed it in their brief in time. And so yeah. the court there said, I feel an obligation to not have that kind of disparity. So I'm going to do the historical inquiry. And, you know, we could debate whether or not that's the proper role of a judge or you know, maybe that, yeah. whether that is a good thing that a judge should be doing by not trying to create disparities, not striking down laws if there is evidence it knows about, even if the government hasn't introduced it. Um, and we could talk about whether, you know, it's right for Bruin to say, you know, the principal party presentation, which is the government has to introduce this kind of evidence to sustain its burden, um, you know, whether all that's also you know, a good standard
0: yeah i mean and we we uh certainly will discuss that because i know that's that's a significant part of this paper that yeah you've uh revised and and published but um yeah i mean it does feel like a sort of growing pains after this this rule this new rule has been adopted by the court this new standard and i mean honestly a lot of growing pains on the part of the government and not really uh, it seems to me at least uh, that they're supposed to be the ones who provide the, this evidence right. and if right. the judges feel like they're not they're doing such a poor job of that, that they have to go out and do it themselves. Uh, I mean, I think that maybe speaks to the lack of preparedness on the part of most of these uh, states that, that are defending these laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, also just the early stage that we're in yeah. uh, post-Bruin, because, you know, some people like, uh, like, you know, Duke Farms Center, uh, Law, uh, Law Center, have been chronicling historical gun laws for I presume this exact purpose or, or, you know, not entirely, but largely because, uh, you know, people saw this was mm-hmm. perhaps the direction the court might be headed in looking at the these historical laws for guidance on what's modern laws are are constitutional. But um, but, you know, certainly a lot of governments weren't doing that, it seems like. Yeah. Um, right. And you might
1: think like, you know, when a state's passing a new law, like in New York, New York and New Jersey, you know, you could say they should have been prepared for this because they knew yeah, what was happening. Yes, Maybe even differently situated than like a local's prosecutor's office who's just has a, you know, a right. claim raised in a case that they're prosecuting that there's a Second Amendment issue. And maybe the, the case was even brought before Bruin. So, you know, yeah. maybe there's a difference between what kind of evidence you'd expect to see in a criminal proceeding versus
0: a, a civil challenge to a law that's recently enacted. Right, right. Yeah, no. And that's a fair point about, you know, who exactly is defending these different laws. Yeah. Certainly New Jersey and New York's Uh, Bruin response laws were passed with the full knowledge of what the court had done and what the standard was, and so there's probably less sympathy for you know whether they were prepared to defend those laws under that standard than yeah a a local prosecutor in Texas somewhere trying to charge somebody for uh, especially that domestic violence case. Very guy was very clear. (laughs) I think that's an interesting one because he's. In part because he's clearly going to be prohibited very soon, right? Right. He's yeah, the, the restraining con- order, actual conviction comes. Yeah. Yeah. He's got like five different things that he did that are going to make him a prohibited person. So it's right. it's a bit of an odd uh, case in that regard. But yes. Uh. But so let's get into some of some of the, more of the discussion of why we're seeing these this the sea change in yeah. the lower courts, and uh, you know, basically the the Bruin standard itself is producing this. Uh, I want to get your take on, on, you know, I, I think you've, you're fairly critical of that mm-hmm. and you're fairly critical of, uh, of what we're seeing and the results of it. Uh, being.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'll say you mentioned that there are not, you know, not every gun rights proponents is in, is in favor of a, of a Texas history and tradition test. And I often point to professor Nelson Lund, who is a George Mason law professor and, is is strongly in favor of Second Amendment rights, held the previous Patrick Henry chair in Second Amendment law, George Mason. Um, and you know I think some of his critiques, even before Bruin about the kind of test, are what we're seeing come true, which is that um, the history is really hard to do, and it's hard to come to a determinate answer that history does necessarily supply an analog for X or doesn't supply an analog for X. And his concern that he raised a few years ago was That what it's going to end up doing is drive uh, the actual values decision making below the surface. So whatever you think about intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny, at least the court there is putting on the table, here's the government's interest and here's the evidence to support the government's interest. And do they match up or not? Is there enough evidence to support that this law is serving that interest? Whereas with historical inquiry, it's, it's kind of hard. It's kind of opaque sometimes what rationales the courts are using to justify Finding tradition sufficient or not. So, in the Antonia case that you mentioned, the court at one point said, "No, there's a historical tradition of banning guns in schools, um, but I don't think that applies to summer camps." Right, and it's not really clear what what what's doing the work in that analogy. Right, what is what is the court seeing that's analogous or not between schools and summer camps? If you have a tradition that the court recognizes about firearm prohibitions in schools, is it what's different about summer camps? Is it that you know they're not required. You're not required to be in them. Is it that they're not always children? Is it that they're in special places? The court really doesn't say, and Bruin doesn't give a lot of guidance on how to actually draw the analogies. Um, but I'll say in general about the test, I kind of have two concerns about it. One is at the conceptual level about what it requires courts to do, and then one is at the practical level about how much guidance Bruin gave lower courts. So at the conceptual conceptual level one of the things Bruin says is that you've got to find a historical tradition of regulating in a similar way in the past in order to sustain a modern gun law. And to me, that's just inconsistent with, with the concept of original public meaning originalism, which the justices and the majority in Bruin purport uh, to believe, which is that the understanding at the time of the Second Amendment's ratification is what should guide interpretation in the present. and It's just not the case. I think we can all agree that all of the laws that the founding generation thought they could have enacted, did they necessarily enact? So it's entirely, uh, you know, not just plausible, but I think um, undeniable that there are laws that the founding generation thought they could have done and didn't do because there wasn't a need to do them. So it doesn't have to be related to guns at all, right? There are other things that they didn't do that they had authority to do. Um, but Bruin essentially erases that category of law laws that could have been enacted that but that weren't enacted because it says that you have to find an enacted law in the past that's similar enough to a modern one. Um, and to me that just um, it, it's an, an, an act, it provides an inaccurate understanding of the scope of authority at the founding generation so instead of looking to did the founding generation think about, X conduct as a right that was immune from government regulation. Uh, Bruin says instead, look at the other side. Look at did the founding generation actually legislate with respect to X? So that's kind of my conceptual problem with the Bruin test. And that's why I talk about it's giving this oversized um, importance to the role of historical silence, which is if government didn't do something and they couldn't do something. At the level right. of pragmatics, um, I think there are just a lot of questions that Bruin didn't answer. So even if you Reject my conceptual concerns, or say that they, um, you know, there's other answers for those. I think if you're a district court trying to apply Bruin faithfully, there are a lot of concerns that lower courts are um, voicing about the ability to do that task because Bruin doesn't even say how many laws you need. Um, is it is it a, is it a set number of laws? Uh, you know, the Antonia court at one point said three laws that constitutes a tradition. Other courts have said seven laws. Um, some other courts have even said, you know. Roughly half the nation having this law does not make it a tradition. Um, So that kind of what a tradition consists of uh, and then kind of related questions of, you know, how many states had to have adopted them? How long do they have to last for? Does it matter what the population density of the given states, what these particular laws were, um, a lot of questions about how to apply the test in practice, Bruin left open. And we're seeing the lower courts that are reaching different results. So whether you know it's constitutional to bar somebody with a felony indictment from acquiring a new gun. Some courts say yes, some courts say no. That's not surprising, right? That's gonna happen after any big ruling. But what is surprising and I think more concerning is that they're disagreeing about how to actually do the test. So some of them say you know, it's a step one issue. Some say it's a step two uh, tradition issue versus a plain text issue. Some say, you know, we're applying a test that looks for a distinctly similar analog because this is a co- type of problem that has persisted uh, from the founding. Some say we apply a different test when it's dramatic technological change or a social problem that hasn't existed. And then we're looking for a Relevantly similar analog, which is not the same as a distinctly similar analog. So I think the problem on the practical level is that it's not that courts are reaching different results; it's that courts are applying different tests and hmm. um, and, and are, are voicing their own confusion about what the test should look like.
0: Yeah, interesting. I think starting with that that practical level issues that you're talking about yeah. I mean, is wouldn't part of that be just the the fact that the court. Generally, has not done many Second Amendment cases, and and I because I, I would kind of expect yeah. to see this. Uh, now I'm not you know a constitutional law yeah. expert, and I don't I don't know exactly how First Amendment litigation has played out over the years in a you know in, in granular detail, mm-hmm. but but I do know that the First Amendment has had dozens and dozens and dozens of cases decided before the Supreme Court over the the last century or so, and yeah. then the Second Amendment has only had three and four i guess, if you count sertano five if you count miller which sort of does uh, I, the current court does kind of set up as the base yeah. basis for for all of this um uh, but uh you know that so that's that's one of the things i would say is like you know after heller they didn't like the way that the courts were trying to reconcile mm-hmm. that ruling with uh, current gun laws and so uh you know Bruin is sort of mostly, uh, I think, a refutation of the the two step analysis yeah. that a lot of lower courts were using, uh, which which is one reason too that I think it's not necessarily. Uh, I'm not really surprised yeah. by how many successful claims there have been compared to the period after Heller because Bruin kind of, <laughs> while it you know, it spends four pages just relitigating what Heller says, and it this this test it lays out is like kind of just here's what we meant about what we were saying in Heller yeah. but it's sort of a step by step i it's certainly you're right that it there's not uh, it's not a comprehensive it's not it, it'll mm. be there's going to be a lot of uh, growing pains in terms of applying it at the lower level to lots of different cases beyond the specifics of a handgun ban or a gun, uh, may issue carry law because those were the ones that the court specifically looked at, but I, you know, I kind of expect both a lot of response from the lower courts to sh- that that results in um, you know more favorable outcomes for Second Amendment advocates because of the nature of the the ruling, and then also a lot of disagreement because there's so little to go off of because have only been really I don't know two major cases yep. on the Second Amendment at this point.
1: Yeah. So I see two points there. One is. Um, this is just expected because, you know, it's a new decision and every new decision is going to lead to confusion, the immediate after that. Yeah. Espe-
0: especially with such little, yes, uh, real little case law. You know, yeah. case law it.
1: And and second this notion that, um, what we're seeing is also expected because Bruin's not just a new test, but it's saying repudiating the old test that you were doing yeah. it wrong by upholding too many laws. Um, yeah, I think those are absolutely right. I think that's it's expected that when there's a kind of watershed new Supreme Court opinion that there will be disruption in the immediate aftermath, that lower courts are going to struggle uh, to figure out just how this should work to new claims that weren't before the court. Um, yeah, so there's there's one level in which um, it's expected in normal and a part of the constitutional process. Um, at the same time, you know, I think uh, you know my view is that there are things the court could have done to say um. Uh, to to recognize that it was announcing a new test that hadn't been applied Uh, in the previous 15 years of litigation that had built up over um, between Heller and and Bruin. And, you know, there's a change in composition on the Supreme Court that explains why it took the case now. Um, But at least some of the 15 years, you know, there were calls by many advocates over those years that the Supreme Court should have stepped in earlier and said something. And so probably uh, should have. Yeah. The fact that we got, uh, you know, 15 years of precedent built up before the court said, um, that they've been doing it wrong since since essentially the year after Heller. I think 2009 is the earliest I've seen the court applying something like the two-step test. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, for that to be happening, you know, 15 years later, um, you know, part of it is the court should have acted earlier, right? If the courts were doing yeah. it wrong, and, and obviously that is, that personal is changes.
0: Obviously, <laughs> yeah, I think there is sort of a practical political aspect to to this too, because the the. Uh, we don't know exactly how the court thinks about things most yep. of the time uh, outside of when somebody leaks a draft yeah, get, or yeah, get <laughs> reporting from <that> inside yes. <laughs> but but um you know you, I was just reading tea leaves on the outside you know the, the court's makeup changing probably did yeah. uh, embolden some of the the members of the court who are more favorable towards an expansive reading of the second amendment yeah. to actually take a case finally to go further into depth, because Heller, you know, certainly you can read Heller and get what they're saying in Bruin mm-hmm. from it, and a lot of people did make that case. And I mean, that's Kavanaugh is the one who came up with this yeah. text, text history tradition standard when he was on the D.C. Circuit, uh, yeah. Court of Appeals in another dissent, uh, of course. Yeah. But um, uh, just like uh, cancer with with um, Amy uh, Amy Coney Barrett, but but uh, yeah, they didn't actually do anything. You had some of the justices talking about you know second amendment being tra- yes. treated as a second last right um and so forth and you know thomas and alito and, and gorsuch i think at one mm-hmm. one point mm-hmm. or another had joined uh dissents on when they would deny these these lower court cases uh, these right. appeals so that's a very fair critique I, I and i think it's one that was very yeah. very much uh, really, common yeah. in the gun. everybody agrees um, with that one yes yeah but it's
1: in the gun rights side say so i should have done this earlier yeah
0: yeah but um uh, let's get back to some of the the core sort of philosophical critiques yeah. of the ruling itself, because, you know, there's the practical aspect of it's been uh, there's been a bit of a mess in the lower courts on how to apply Bruin. And, you know, you, you can certainly uh, there's a lot of probably a lot of things that go into that, whether it's genuine misunderstandings between courts on who are acting in good faith or. Yeah, I'm sure there are gun rights advocates who would accuse certain lower court judges of just, again, the the old critique of the two-step test was that it was meant to kind of ignore what Heller was saying Mm -hmm. and get around it. And so I think there's, you have that same critique from gun rights advocates on some of these lower court rulings that uphold laws uh, by applying Bruin in in a way that they wouldn't agree with. Um, But going back to the larger uh, conceptual argument, one of the things that... uh, you brought up this idea of it's, it's a harder test to do this, this historical analysis than it is to do, you know, a balancing test that balances government interests against the, you know, rights of, of people. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and one of the critiques of that, that I've seen in the gun rights space is, uh, you know, for instance, from somebody like Mark Smith, um, mm-hmm. who has argued that, uh, you know, it doesn't, that the, it should be easier for judges to look at something they understand, which is the law, you know, historical statutes, and uh, be able to interpret what those, you know, the the how and why of those statutes, and whether they are close close uh, analogs to a modern statute, than doing like social science. Uh, you know, balancing based off of whether or not this policy has the right effect. You understand, like the critique is basically judges are actually more suited to do this sort of yeah. test than they are to do, you know, a test of whether or not a certain gun policy has the the right percentage effect to justify, the, you know, the balancing against the rights of that are implicated.
1: Yeah. Um, And I I think that's certainly the perspective that Bruin raises in the case itself, where it says, you know, we think this is more administrable than um, weighing costs and benefits. Right. Um, Right. And one of the ways I think it says that is it it, it talks about these default rules and presumptions, including uh, the notion of party presentation that uh, the courts aren't supposed to be out there roving through archives and doing their own historical research that right. the government's burden is to introduce the evidence. Um, and so I, I, I think that's you know I think that's the the presumption that Broome is going off of as well. Um, you know, my view is that you know we talked about First Amendment jurisprudence a little bit. Means in scrutiny, intermediate and strict scrutiny is a fundamental feature of current First Amendment law. Um so this is what courts are doing all over the place when they deal with the First Amendment question. Um, almost all of the time, if they're not saying that it's categorically unprotected speech, things that have been unprotected forever, like true threats, um, then they're do, then they're moving to means and scrutiny and they're asking questions about what's the government's interest and is this law narrowly tailored to serve the government's interest? Um, so kind of on the other side, which is the notion that, um, you know, whatever may have been the case in like a, a a general understanding of what a judge does, at least for the past, since the 1960s or so, courts have been applying means and scrutiny. They've been doing strict inter- intermediate scrutiny. And so it's a task that courts are familiar with. And I just want to say, you know, one of the reasons one of the one of the few courts that adopted the two-part framework initially um, were conservative judges who were trying to faithfully apply Heller. So i um, you know, I, I think at least the, the two-part framework did not arise as a result of judges who wanted to get around Heller. So Judge Diane Sykes on the Seventh Circuit, um, Judge Anthony Sirica on the Third Circuit, two very early circuit court opinions that they authored um, where they adopted this two-part framework and they're conservative judges appointed by Republican presidents. And, you know, my read of those cases is that they thought this was faithful to Heller. It turns out Bruin says that's not the best reading of Heller, but I don't think it was the the two-part framework was designed in order to get around Heller. I think it was designed... Uh, for judges to say, look, we do this in the First Amendment context and we know the First Amendment is an individual right uh, that has that's a fundamental individual right that has strong uh, protection in the courts. And so we think this kind of test is the same thing we should do in Second Amendment spaces. But yeah, I think you're right that there's this debate over which one of these kind of two tasks is harder doing the historical inquiry or looking at historical statutes or doing this kind of means in scrutiny where you're analyzing, uh the policy effects of a given law like both those tasks are hard, um and yes, we could certainly disagree um over which of those tasks is harder
0: yeah fair fair point and i and I think maybe it might be a part of a larger effort by the the current court to uh push back on balancing tests generally yes. that seems to be right. the implication in bruin at least uh you know from from thomas's opinion so that right yeah be the part of a larger the, the
1: critique of the in Bruin is not limited as Second Amendment cases it's more like. We don't do this for constitutional rights generally, which yeah might yeah. mean that's and, going to do that for other areas.
0: Yeah, and obviously the other critique of the two parts. I think one of the main critiques was that they a lot of judges weren't really applying intermediate scrutiny; they were applying yes. more yeah. of a rational basis. The intermediate scrutiny applied in too many situations, and that courts were applying it too leniently. Yeah, right. Um, but either way, um, the other the other critique that I hear a lot of, of about um, you know some of these complaints with with Bruin yeah. uh, deals with uh, you know, the, the, the analog, analogy process, mm-hmm. right. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously there's going to be some, um, there's, there's wiggle room in that process because like you pointed out, like what exactly is an acceptable analogy? Uh, I think the court in Bruin will tend, it seems to be implying that if there's any question you should go towards the, the, the interpretation that is more, um, More fate, more. uh, uh, It's the right word here. More uh, that that gives the Second Amendment rights more leeway. I guess would be Mm there. That's how they seem to approach it. Um, But obviously, there's an open question of what is what is you know a a similar analogy to a modern law from how do the you know the how and why are supposed to match up, but how closely you know so and that's why you've seen you know a, a range of answers to that question so far. But um, but you know the the the, the idea that uh, well if they didn't speak on it at the time that implies that it wasn't constitutional to enact that sort of restriction you know, this this uh, issue that you raised earlier uh, you know I think the critique of that is is just that there weren't a lot of gun laws at the founding there weren't a lot yeah. of gun restrictions and most of the backlash to Bruin is just people who wish there had been more and uh, don't like the fact that what that implies in how the standard is supposed to be applied. Yeah. Is that I don't see that as a
1: critique though. I mean, yeah, like there, maybe there weren't a lot of gun laws, but maybe that's because there weren't a lot of gun violence problems at the founding. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily shed light on like, the, the question that uh, originalists should be asking is if they confronted the same problems, what did they think the tools they could have used were right. And so mm-hmm. if they had problems of frequent mass shootings or, uh, you know, widespread community violence in urban centers, then what did they think the Second Amendment would have allowed legislatures to do? Right. That should be the originalist question. And you don't um, see
0: the analogy that because that, like you mentioned, there there yeah. is sort of a mechanism for this in Bruin where they admit that, you know, there there's been technological advancements, exactly. there's new societal issues that have come out of that. And so in those cases, you can uh, you can use a little bit broader view of what, what's yes, analogous. Yes, you can use a little bit But you don't broader. think that's exce- that's, that addresses the do Well, issue I, don't,
1: I don't think it addresses it because you can use, all it does is say, if you have an old law, then you can kind of make it, you can apply the analogousness restriction a little bit looser, right? So you can find one that's not exactly the same, but it's similar, but maybe not as similar as you'd be required to find if it was the same problem, like, say, Felon firearm violence, right, which the court seems to suggest is the same. If there was just no legislation at all because it wasn't a problem at the founding era, then the loosening of the restriction with analogousness doesn't really help because there just were no laws, right? Um, and so I, I don't think it's a complete answer. Sure, it, it certainly helps um, when you're talking about um, if we have a set of laws that we're looking at, how closely they were going to require those to mirror the laws um, in contemporary times. Then yeah, I, I think it does make sense what the court says, which is if there are huge changes um, in the issue that's being dealt with today, then we should uh, relax the restriction on on analogies a little bit. Um, but that doesn't fully answer the concern because it doesn't tell us what to do. where, then, where there were no laws, um, even if we had, say, we had good evidence um, that they thought that they could legislate on it if there was a problem, um, even if we say, even if we have, you know, tons of evidence, lots of legislators saying, lots of letters between founding uh, uh, founding generation individuals saying, we could do this, um, but we don't see the need to do it. Even if we had that kind of evidence, Bruin seems to me to say, um, that doesn't make a difference unless you have an enacted law on the topic. That's the only thing that we're looking for.
0: Hmm. Okay, interesting. Well, so can you tell people where they can find your paper, where they can read more from you on this topic if, if they want to do that?
1: Yeah, so you can find um, my paper on... Um, SSRN is a, uh, a, a database where lots of legal scholars will post um, uh, drafts of um, forthcoming articles. So this article is going to be published in the Duke Law Journal in October, um, but it's called The Dead Hands of a Silent Past, uh, Bruin, uh, Gun Rights and the Shackles of History. Um, I also did a blog post on it at the Duke Center for Firearms Law's um, Second Thoughts blog, um, and it was called uh, By the Numbers, How Disruptive Has Bruin
0: Been? So that's a couple of places where you can find our writing on this. And we linked it in our piece on, on, on the topic as well. So people Excellent. can head out there and, and read it. So obviously much longer uh, and much, but there's a lot to it, a lot more to it than we could get into today on this podcast, but, but we do appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us and giving your point of view, uh, I think is very valuable for people to understand, uh, you know, where you're coming from and some of, some of your critiques of, of Bruin and, and have this, this good conversation that we've had. So I've, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it too. Yeah. And we'll have to have you on again in the future as well. Sounds good. Maybe for Rahimi. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. That, yeah. We'll, we'll see what the court does with that. It does seem like usually they take those cases, right? When they're when it's appealed by the government.
1: When it's appealed by the government and it strikes down a federal
0: law, yeah, usually high chances. Yeah. So we'll we'll see if they, maybe they'll start taking some other cases too. I mean, like, yeah. like we mentioned here, they could use some more case law on the subject. Yeah, uh, so. that would help
1: with the problems of lower courts trying to figure out what to do. Exactly.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, uh we will absolutely have you on again in the future right now we're going to head over to our news update all right we're joined again this week by contributing writer jake fogelman to give us some news updates how are you doing jake how's the transition to spring treating you uh it's
2: a little bit bittersweet um uh, weather's been getting pretty nice here out here in Colorado, uh, after a pretty bitterly cold winter. So it's starting to get sunny and nice, but with that comes spring allergies. I get really bad spring allergies and they're just starting to mm. kick in for the first time this year. And that's been a little rough,
0: yeah, uh, but other yeah, than that, I can't,
2: fun. can't complain. How, how yeah. have you been?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually headed up to the farm. My mom's farm up in Pennsylvania this weekend, uh, to take care of the horses. I really just for a night and then on, cause I have to come back for Saturday. Uh, my girlfriend's going through the naturalization process, so um, that's exciting. Uh, she's uh, from the Philippines originally, but um, yeah, and then on Sunday, actually, I'm finishing up my DC-Maryland DC, con- DC Maryland Concealed Carry training course, so that's, that's a positive thing. Of course, I actually have scheduled my application drop-off already with uh, Metro Police Department in DC, and the most, uh, the the closest available date is June 14th. So about three months from now, and that's that's just to drop off the application. Uh, They still have 90 days to actually process the application, which consists, I mean, I'm not sure what they're doing beyond a background check uh, that every other state does in an instant. Literally, it's an instantaneous process in um, when you go and buy a gun, for instance. But uh, I'm not sure what else they do during that process, if, if anything, frankly. Uh, but uh, around here, they, they generally do t- get, take those full 90 days to actually issue you a permit. Because I mean, they just don't want people to have them is the bottom right. line. Uh, of course, the whole process, uh, the application process is about 100 bucks. And then on top of that, you have the training requirements, which costs probably around $350 when you combine the cost of the class. And I have a pretty good deal on my my course. But even with that, uh, it's still probably about $350 when you consider the range costs and ammo costs to go through the, the course. And, of course, uh, two hours of that class are range time, which is an issue because D.C. doesn't have a public range anywhere in the city. <laughs> And so um, if you live in the city and, and the other complication is you can't transport firearms on public transit. So uh, unlike in Virginia and Maryland, in the metro system here, the, the trains, the subway, they service D.C., Maryland and Virginia. And in D.C. in Virginia and Maryland, if you have a permit, you can carry legally on those uh, on the trains. But in D.C., you can't. There's a specific law in D.C., that says you can't carry on any public transit, buses or trains. So if you are if you live in DC and you're not particularly well off, it's fairly difficult for you to actually get one of these permits in reality, which frankly is probably exactly why they are designed the way they are.
2: Right, I was gonna um, say it's probably a feature rather than a bug in,
0: in their eyes. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's safe to say in fact there's a there's an ongoing lawsuit against the MPD um, gun recovery unit that claims they systematically target um, African American men in low income neighborhoods for uh, basically stop and frisk procedures that were made famous in New York and essentially stopping people for with no uh, reasonable suspicion to do so uh, well actually I actually plan to write about that in a, soon here. I, I did an interview with the, the lawyers in that case. but anyway, so there, there are deeper problems that uh, come come out of these gun laws the way they're written because that, that you know, stop and frisk was enforcing the New York uh, concealed carry law, which was almost literally impossible for a regular person to actually get a permit. And while this bar is not quite the same in DC now as it was in New York City then, it's still extremely high for someone who's not well off. But anyway, you know, for, for comparison, I I got the notice that my Pennsylvania non-resident concealed carry permit has been approved and I have, just have to go pick it up, which I'm planning to do on Friday. Uh, that process cost $26 and took less than a month.
2: <laughs> so it is always funny how some some jurisdictions manage to manage to make it so easy and they can somehow manage the big workload and, and keep the fees low yeah. and then others it apparently is uh quite the quite the task.
0: Yes, and of course obviously now we've got 25 states where you don't need a permit at all. Right. To, right. So uh the then and, and the, that's really um that the whole system is changing for the better if you uh, obviously depending on your point of view but if you are concealed carrier, you believe in concealed carry, it's changing for the better over time here. But anyway, <laughs> so that's what I'm up to. Um, getting back to news of the week, we actually have very, uh, very terrible story to talk about, which I'm sure everyone has already heard. Uh, and some of the, we also have a few stories sort of connected to this that we've written about. Um, you know, there, there was this the school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, that left three children dead and three adults as well. And, um, you know, just a horrendous situation. I've been on CNN and C-SPAN talking about it a lot this week. Um, very hard, uh, very, very hard situation, very, very disturbing. Um, the police response, I just talked about this on active self-protections podcast. anyone who likes this podcast should really go and check that podcast out because they'll probably. Uh, really enjoy that as well. But we talked about the police response, the badge cams that came out, and I can't compliment that enough. I mean, those guys did exactly what you're supposed to do. I think that's going to be the example that everyone points to going forward in active shooter response classes. I've taken several of them over the years, and those guys were, were on point. They're well-trained. They communicated, and they had urgency, and they they were able to well, uh, about four minutes after they entered that building neutralized that shooter and i think they saved a lot of lives so thank god for those guys absolutely but uh but two of the stories we've written about that sort of connect to this because the shooter did use uh they had three guns on them uh one was an ar-15 pistol uh, one was a sub two thousand nine millimeter pistol caliber carbine and one was a Um, a handgun, a nine millimeter handgun. And so there's been a lot of discussion as there always is after an event like this about AR-15s and so-called assault weapons. Uh, I think the sub 2000 would probably be, uh, would probably fall under most States assault weapons bans. So, um, we had two significant stories. One you, you wrote about, which, uh, is actually one of the first major polls specifically of AR-15 owners. Can you tell us a little bit about that poll? Sure, yeah. So this was
2: a, a project of the Washington Post, um, a, sort of a joint project with uh, Ipsos, which is like a polling firm. Um, and as you said, this, they they conducted an, an AR-15 owner-specific poll uh, as sort of a subset of one of their um gun pulls that they run regularly. They actually ran this last fall, but they are just now releasing it because they did a big series of pieces on the AR15. Um right.
0: With what was interesting about its quality in my
2: opinion. They, they, this piece. That's right. I say that's right. There were there were certainly some some uh questionable information in some of the other pieces, but as you said, this poll was, was cool to see. Yeah, it was yeah. a reputable pollster that conducted it, and what they found one of the big takeaways from this poll is they were able to come up with an estimate uh, based on their polling samples to see just how many people they think own an AR-15 or a similar rifle. And what they came down to was about 6% or about 1 in 20 uh, Americans, they say, own an AR-15, uh, which in raw numbers, that comes out to about 16 million people, which a rough estimate. But that's, you know, 16 million is a pretty sizable uh, proportion of the population.
0: Yeah. Well, that's people who currently self-report as being AR-15 owners, so right. they own one right now, and this does line up fairly well as you wrote with some of the other estimates we've seen. Yeah, you know, the National Shooting Sports Foundation has estimated there uh, were t- 24.4 million AR-15s and AK-47s sold be- between now and 1990. Um, so 16 million owners would be, you know, more than one gun per owner, but that's not entirely unreasonable assumption and then you, there was also the National Firearms Survey i believe it was called right from the Georgetown professor William English what and That's he right. found uh, his his estimate was a bit higher but he looked at anyone who's ever owned an AR style AR15 or similar firearm right
2: that's right. Yeah. So he surveyed just gun owners generally across the country, and he found about 30% of gun owners said that they ha- either do or have owned an AR-15 or similar styled rifle. And that came out to about 24.6 million people. Um, so yeah. it's a little bit higher than the 16 million. But when you count that, the question included folks that maybe at one point owned an AR-15. It's in the ballpark. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So pretty, pretty big numbers, as as we would expect to see in the, in this, uh, what were some of the breakdowns on why the people said they owned AR-15s?
2: Yeah, well, this was pretty interesting. The, the number one self-reported reason for why AR-15 owners purchased their AR-15 was self-defense. Um, so mm-hmm. this sort of tracks with broader trends in gun culture overall, where self-defense is overwhelming the number one reason people purchase guns, period. Uh, yep. so I guess it sort of makes sense that the 15 owners would also quote that. Uh, about one-third of the Air 15 owners they surveyed listed that as their primary reason. But uh, upwards of 66% said it was a major reason. So it's mm-hmm. clearly on the, you know, the front of mind for folks that own these these rifles.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, I guess, demographically, there was some interesting stuff, too. For instance, uh, military service. There was, there was an interesting bit about military service in there. That's right. Yeah. So... Not only
2: were AR-15 owners more likely to have uh, a past of military service than Americans overall, but they were also more likely to have served in the military than just your typical gun owner. Um, it still still was a minority of AR-15 owners that said they had served. I, I believe it was something right. like a quarter, uh, but yeah. still. But I think only like seven
0: percent. Yeah, only like seven percent of the population has served in the military. So, right, if have a quarter of AR-15 owners have done it. That means they're. Significantly more likely to, you know, an AR-15 owner is significantly more likely to have military service than uh, your average American, which is interesting. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because the AR-15 is uh, the same pattern rifle as uh, an M4 or M16. It's uh, obviously it's the semi-automatic only version of that firearm. But if you're coming from using that gun in the military, you're going to be used to the controls and and how uh how to operate it safely and effectively so it makes sense that that would be a, a common gun that that you see veterans uh, uh you know picking up for themselves
2: yeah no, absolutely and it's funny they actually pulled that question specifically they asked among those veterans was your time and service a deciding factor in you purchasing uh, an ar 15 and it's funny it was actually a lower number than you would think i think only something like four percent said that that was their main reason but as you said that could still be a contributing factor yeah. to when deciding for one rifle versus another particular weapon for self-defense
0: for example it might not be their main reason but i'm sure it was yeah, a contributing factor for a lot of them. Right. i would imagine when you're trained on a gun uh you know and and it's one that was reliable for you uh, in your your time in the service then it would make sense but it's similar to why in 1911 is uh was so popular and remains so popular today because that was the sidearm for the army for 80 years and even still see service with some units today but um you know the that remains incredibly popular uh because of that or partially because of that at, at the very least um so yeah interesting interesting stuff out of that poll uh, and then we also had of course another development uh out of delaware this time right a federal judge ruled on that state's new uh so-called assault weapons ban
2: yeah no that's right and it's it's funny because there's sort of a, a linking factor here where if a, we have documented polling data to suggest that you know anywhere between 16 to 24 million depending on which one of these sources we've covered uh 16 to 24 million people own these rifles uh which you could use that to make an argument that these things are in common use and in common mm-hmm. use for self-defense when that's the number one reason cited right And then you get to this case where uh, gun rights groups were challenging Delaware's state assault weapon ban and their ban on, quote, unquote, high capacity magazines. Um, And the judge in that case, he agreed. He said, yep, uh, AR-15s and similar rifles and as well as these magazines, they are in common use for self-defense. But nevertheless, he declined to issue an injunction blocking both of those laws. Uh, yeah, because that he,
0: was the he, big he, twist. Right. It's right. sort of like, I mean, whoa, our yeah, left turn I mean, there. <laughs> when I first read, uh, I think um, Rob Romano on, on Twitter, uh, he works for the Firearms Policy Coalition. But he tweets out a lot of these um, um, decisions as they come out. And uh, he was the first one uh, I saw a tweet about it. And his thread confused me so much because, <laughs> you know, his first tweet is like, oh, he denied this injunction. But then his following tweets were like, oh, he found that AR-15s and, and you know, so-called assault weapons are in common use. They're in common use for self-defense purposes. They're, uh, the standard, it doesn't, it's not dangerous or unusual. It's dangerous and unusual, which, uh, these wouldn't qualify for. And then at the end, it's like, oh no, yeah, but he still said you can ban them. Uh, and so that was, that was pretty surprising to, to see, right? Because I mean, the court, uh, this sort of, Base level ruling in Heller was that any firearm that's in common use for lawful purposes, like self-defense, would be presumptively protected by the Second Amendment, uh, which, right. which is what he agreed with, right? But then there's a twist after that.
2: That's right. Yeah. No, I was going to say he even specifically says yes, these AR-15s and large capacity magazines are covered by the Second Amendment. However, one weird trick uh, yeah. there's been a they these guns and these magazines they represent a quote-unquote dramatic technological change and they bring unprecedented concerns for public safety right Uh, and so that
0: comes from bruin
2: right and so therefore he pointed to sort of analogous law, sort of analogous laws, depending on your point of view, on you know late 19th century, sometimes 20th century bans on things like Bowie knives and you know billy clubs um, yep. and concealed carry as well. Some of the stuff we've seen in other gun cases, basically pointed to those as analogs for why, despite everything that he laid out before about these firearms being in common use for self-defense, that they can actually be regulated, and therefore he did not block uh, Delaware's law.
0: Yeah, it was uh, a very interesting ruling, um, you know, I, and one one of the interesting things about it, too, is that it's not the first time we've seen this reasoning, right?
2: That's right. Yeah. No, it's it's very similar to that Oregon case, uh, the federal the federal version of the Oregon case that, for their ballot measure that uh, instituted a permit to purchase requirement and a, a magazine ban as well. And the judge in that case made a very, very similar argument for why she was unwilling to block that law before it took effect. So it's... Yes. it's Clearly, something's coming together here where this is going to be a new argument that at least some judges are willing to use.
0: Yeah, this seems like this will be the template for how judges who are inclined to do so try to uphold assault weapons bans and magazine restrictions around the country. So don't be surprised to see this this line of thinking pop up again uh, down the road, especially when you get to like the Ninth Circuit or the the Fourth Circuit reviewing these sorts of laws. Um, because I think that's, that's where the, the gun control movement has coalesced on the legal argument side here. And so this is, that's what I predicted actually after the Oregon, um, ruling was, was handed down the denial of the, the TRO, the temporary restraining order. Uh, you know, I looked at that reasoning. I thought, okay, this is, this is the, uh, a more solid attempt to come to terms with, Bruin and while also upholding these modern, uh, hardware bans. And yeah, here it is again, we've seen it pop up, uh, once more, you know, it's not a coincidence, right? I mean, this is the arguments that they make in the case, right? It doesn't come from the judges, really the judges hear the arguments and then they decide whose side they think was more persuasive. And so this is the, the line that you're seeing from, um, from states around the country, trying to defend their, their restrictions. And um, I, I don't think it's going to last long, frankly. I don't think this is something the Supreme Court is going to um, be okay with. Now, it may require them to actually get involved in a case and take a case for that to, to really matter. But um, I mean, one of the big flaws in this reasoning, besides the fact that I think the court would just say, once you've got it, you know, it's very similar to how they, they talked about the two-step uh analysis right that that lower courts used to use to uphold gun laws and they called it you know one step too many right that's that's kind of what this feels like too right he's after you determine that uh class of firearms is in common use for a lawful purpose I think the court just wants you to stop there like you you can't ban those things it would be sort of the obvious conclusion I think from reading Heller and and Bruin but um you know uh the other issue is that by this logic he's using, he's he's arguing that, you know, semi-automatic firearms and uh, magazines that hold more than the whole multiple rounds of, of ammunition weren't, not that they didn't exist at the founding, because they did, you know, repeating shot firearms and magazines existed at the founding. Um, and he notes that, and so did the Oregon judge. But they weren't popular as the idea. They didn't become popular um, until, you know, really the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So therefore, the idea is that, um, well, you, you can ban them essentially with the logic we just described there. And of course, the problem with that is it's a logic that allows you, there's really not much of a limiting factor there. You could ban semi-automatic handguns, all of them under this reasoning and really all magazines, right? Right. I mean, that's sort of uh, the the implication that you get out here. And, and I don't see that that seems to obviously conflict with Heller, which was about banning handguns. Right. Um, so a- anyway, the, but uh, you know, we don't know how that's going to play out. That's just my analysis of where the issues, the weak points of this ruling, but uh, it's, frankly, it's going to take uh, a while longer to get to that conclusion because you're still going to have to go through the other higher courts, and uh, it's not clear that, especially in circuits where they have these laws, that the higher courts would be inclined not to adopt this exact same kind of reasoning. Yeah, um, I think that's now, right. I think it'll,
2: I think it'll likely yeah, take okay. Supreme Court stepping in to actually nip that in the bud for that yeah. exact reason.
0: Exactly, and and uh, I should note that uh, I have talked to. The Delaware sports, uh, the Delaware gun rights group that brought this case. And they have told me that they are going to appeal this decision. So we will see more on this case moving forward. And we will, of course, follow that here at the reload. Um, but that's all we've got for this week. Uh, if you appreciate the reporting that we do, if you want to support us, please like and share this episode. Um, go ahead, uh, leave a comment. On YouTube, if you if you'd like, or leave a rating on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. That really helps us out a lot. Of course, if you want to go a step further and gain access to exclusive content that you won't get anywhere else, and get this podcast a day early, plus the opportunity to appear on the show yourself if you'd like in a member segment, then you can head over to thereload.com and buy a membership today. Uh, That is how we run our business. We have no investors or no, there's no uh, corporate overlord. This is an independent and informed publication where readers are the ones who fund our work. So please head over and check out membership options today if that's something that interests you. Uh, But that's all we've got for this week. We will see you again soon.